This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. I invite you all, if you could, to remain standing and open to Acts chapter 17, the book of Acts chapter 17. And if you want to use one of the pew Bibles we have, that'll be on page 926. Acts 17, we've been studying the book of Acts and tracing there how the spirit of the resurrected and and ascended Christ caused the word of God to spread, the gospel to spread, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then reaching out to the further stretches here of the Roman Empire. Last Two weeks ago, last time we were in the book of Acts, we were in the city of Philippi, and now this morning we pick up that account and where they have to leave Philippi, they travel some 100 miles by feet, by foot, and they come to the city of Thessalonica in verses 1 through 9, and then to the city of Berea in verses 10 through 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord now. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of God. May bless it to your hearing. Thank you. Well, it's interesting that Luke notes that by the time that Paul and Silas reach Thessalonica, they have a reputation. And the reputation they have is for turning the world 
upside down, as it says there. The term means to agitate, to cause trouble, or to disturb. <clears throat> when it's used in social context, it could even mean uh, to cause an uprising. The question is, how do they get this reputation? Where did this come from? And a second question might be, is this some sort of missionary strategy for us today? Are we called by God to go into cities and cause trouble and, and, and great disturbances and raise up an uprising and so forth? Well, I think the simple answer you know uh, is no. It's not our mission. However, it may actually end up being the result. <laughs> if not immediately, maybe through time. You see, this was the effect... This was the effect or the impact of the gospel upon the lives of individuals first, which then had an effect upon the lives of others, like ripples. It affects other people around them, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Think back at what happened in Philippi. If you remember, when Paul cast the demon out of the slave girl, uh, this turned the world upside down of the wicked owners. Why? Because they could no longer make a living off of her. So their world was changed. Their economy was changed. Their business was changed. Their world, we say, was turned upside down because by the grace of God, her life, her heart was turned upside down. Or as the late Dr. James Boyce liked to say, turned right side up. <laughs> that is to say, when God comes into someone's life, it can feel like our world's turned upside down when actually what's going on is your life is being turned right side up. So this is how they got the reputation. It all begins very simply with that. It begins with, with the message or, or the impact of the message of the gospel. Truth has an impact on people's lives that changes them. And that affects sometimes those around them. When Paul would soon write to the church at Thessalonica, not very long afterwards, he writes in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, describing their, their conversion, he says, you turned to God. From, from idols to serve the living and, and true God. Well, that changes people, right? That's tremendous. That has an impact on people around you. This is a great follow-up, really, to Psalm 19 last week. The Scripture, the Word of God, turns people, restores people, sets people right. Well, that's what happened to the Thessalonians, and sometimes that has an impact on those around you. You're a Christian, you may have felt that. I know I felt that, that when the Word of God came into my life, my, my life, as it were, was turned upside down and it had an impact on my family relationships or traditional Roman Catholic upbringing and so forth. And maybe I know some of you have, 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 have experienced the very same sort of thing. You know, the Lord told us this would happen, that this is one of the inevitable effects of coming to faith in Jesus, it creates a separation. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew records the words of the Lord. He said there, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus does not mean this is your mission. What he means is, that one of the inevitable effects, one of the inevitable results of Christ entering into your life and taking up your cross and following Him, He who is now the new King of your life, the, the new Lord of your life, that, that disturbs people around you who are not ready to give themselves over to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord also said, you are the light of the world. And in some parts of the world, what happens when you turn on the light? Insects scramble. <laughs> they don't like the light. And when you become the light of the world, people become offended around you. In John chapter 3, verse 19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Speaking there of the Son of God. He was in flesh, right? The incarnation. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why people rejected Jesus. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When the light comes into your life, at times it exposes the different motivations, the sinful passions, the idolatries of people around you. It's just one of the inevitable effects of faith in the Lord Jesus does. This is one of the effects of the gospel, beloved. This is one of the impacts of the, of the gospel, the word of God. The truth turns the world, side, the world upside down by turning people right side up. Belief in Jesus will transform you because belief in Jesus is a glorious miracle of the sovereign grace of God. To become a Christian is not simply to add Jesus or tack Jesus onto the life you've already been living. It's not about somehow finding a way to integrate Jesus into all your existing goals or all your existing plans. He is Lord. He is King. He is King of Kings. And He's come to lead your life now that you are his child, he'll lead you in a different direction. Becoming a Christian therefore involves a new birth, a transformation, and coming under the lordship of Jesus. And not all conversions, I understand, are, are as publicly dramatic as the slave girl, let's say, or, or these Thessalonian heathens. I mean, if some of you, I know you grow up in church, and be grateful for that. You'll grow up in a, in a very healthy Christian family, and, and, and coming to faith may be wasn't seen as, 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 as big of an outward transformation. I want to say to you, if that's what you're thinking about, or ever thinking about that, I want to say it was no less a miracle of grace. God worked in your heart a miracle of grace. Your heart was turned towards Him. Though outwardly it may not seem like your whole world was turned upside, upside down because a lot of your world was already right side up in your family. So don't ever despise the way the gospel came to you if that's maybe what you're thinking when you hear testimonies like this. What we have in verses 1 through 15 is we have a record of how the apostolic teaching of the word and the receiving of the word led to this kind of, of reputation that worlds or lives were being turned upside down. It was through the teaching of the word seen primarily in Thessalonica, Luke details more of the teaching there, and the receiving of the word as detailed in Berea that lives were changed, that they were turned upside down or right side up, if you would. So let's walk through both of this, beginning with teaching the word, the apostolic teaching of the word in verses 1 through 9 in Thessalonica. It begins with Paul, Paul going into the synagogue of Jews. This was Paul's natural point of contact. I would say that Paul, he lived with a gospel intentionality. In other words, 
He was always alert to the possibilities of the opportunities of speaking about Jesus. And he, being a Jew and a rabbi, he knew this was a place he would have an audience. And so he went there. This was part of Paul's makeup, part of his, his we might call, philosophy of ministry, to the Jew first and, and then also to the Greek. He said as much in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first but also to the Greek. But what I want you to see is, is Paul's, his, 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 his point of contact, just that principle, and his gospel intentionality, because we have the same sort of opportunities in our lives as well. You have points of contacts with people all the time in the rhythm of your life. They may not have as much of a Bible background as the Jews did in the synagogue for Paul, Maybe some of your point of contacts are more like we'll see next week, like Athens, right? But nevertheless, nevertheless, beloved, it's, uh, we should be living with this gospel intentionality when we go back in the natural rhythms of our life to the same coffee shop, to the same, uh, to the same grocery store, same playground at the park, or same business. Uh, in those contexts, looking for the opportunities to be somehow begin to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also, not only do we have the natural rhythms of our life, but we also can create opportunities, as Paul will, will see, will do next week in Athens. And as a church, we've done that over the years. And you could do it in other ways. You could, you could volunteer to, to coach a, a, uh, a Little League team, for example, and there interact with parents uh, uh, who are not believers and so forth. And what we've done as a church and over these years has been to open doors with the city across the street here in Pleasant Hill uh, by ma helping manage and minister to the 4th of July uh, parade or the uh, cleanup day in Pleasant Hill. Uh, Light up the night is going to be here in, in December where they've, after these so many years of serving, they've given the opportunity to share a testimony in town here. You see, It's, it's, it's like that. It's, it's looking for points of contact. For Paul, it was a synagogue, naturally and then living, living with gospel intentionality. So that's how it started, but how did he teach? Well, there are four verbs that sum up, I think, the message that Luke wants us to understand, and those verbs are he reasoned, he explained, he proved, and he proclaimed. So let's just walk through those four things, those four verbs that sum up what Paul was doing. First of all, it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The verb to reason simply means to think something out, you know, to discuss. Picture yourself sitting in, in your living room and you're talking your way through the Bible. You know, you're, you're, you're discussing it. You're, you're reasoning it out. In Athens, it won't begin like that because his point of contact is, is, is different. He then explained and he proved. The verb to, to explain means to reveal or to exposit. To expose it is to open something up and, and show the meaning of it, show the significance of it. This is the same verb that our author, Luke, used in Luke 24 in his gospel when he spoke there of the experience of those two men who were on the road to Emmaus and Jesus met with them and he, and he taught them from all the scriptures how it had to do with the suffering resurrection of the Messiah and later the two men, Luke writes, said this, that he opened up to us the scriptures. You see, that's this verb. And so what Paul was doing was he was opening up 
the scriptures. And what was the scriptures? Well, it was, the, it was their uh, Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament. He wasn't reading from the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> he was reading from the Old Testament scriptures and opening up to them the meaning of it. And then he proved. He proved. That verb means to make a case. So he, he made his case before them. And what was the case that he was making from their Bible, from their Hebrew Bible? This was the case he was making. That the scriptures have always taught that Messiah, the promised one, was to suffer and then rise from the dead. To suffer and then rise from the dead. Now we hear that, of course, with, with Christian ears, right? We, we hear that with Christian ears and part of us says, well, that, duh, that's obvious. But no, this was not clear to them, beloved. We know that from even the disciples' response, those who were with Jesus for three years, Jesus repeatedly had to say to them, the Son of Man needs to be given over. He needs to, to suffer and then to rise from the dead on the third day, and they didn't understand that. For you and me, this is gospel clarity. We, we get that, but it was not commonly understood to them. For most of the Jews in Jesus and Paul's day, the, the Messiah was going to be a mighty deliverer. Messiah would come and deliver his people with great victories and deliver them, in this case, from the bondage to imperial powers such as Rome. And this is what they longed for and sought. That Messiah would come and die? That there was some sort of benefit in that? Much less die on a cross? That was, that was ludicrous to them. And then what about being raised from the dead? Well, some Jews didn't believe in the resurrection, but a lot of them did believe in the resurrection. But the resurrection to them was a general universal resurrection way in the future, at the end. There was no resurrection of one man in the middle of history, certainly not the Messiah. And so Paul reasoned with them from our what we call our Old Testament, narrating the story of the Bible. You could hear him beginning in Genesis and talking about the promised seed and then the covenant made with Abraham and then moving forward and, and speaking about the sacrifices and how they pictured the suffering of Messiah and moving forward. He, he reasoned with them and what he demonstrated is that this was always God's plan, just like Jesus did and it was recorded in Luke 24. The Messiah was to suffer and then be raised from the dead. You know, Paul helped people understand what the Bible said about Messiah and what it meant. And that's your task too. That's our task as well. Now we have, we have what we would call maybe not synagogue people, but churched people. <laughs> churched people in our midst. And if you teach a Sunday school class, maybe you were doing that first hour and now you're here in, in, the, in the worship service, you're, you're dealing with people who may heard of Noah, yeah, heard of Abraham, but they have not put this all together yet. They've not seen how the narrative of Scripture was teaching this and how it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This is exactly what he did. And after he demonstrated that Messiah must suffer and be raised from the dead, he then proclaimed, that's the fourth verb, he proclaimed to them, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is that Christ, you say. He's the Christ. He's the one 
that I've been talking about. The verb to proclaim means to boldly announce, right? To announce with conviction. And so you see what Paul did. He had this two-pronged uh, message. His first tag- task was what? Convince these Bible-saturated people that what the Hebrew Scriptures were teaching was that Messiah was supposed to suffer, was supposed to die, and was supposed to be raised from the dead. And if you get them that far, if they could be listening in and saying, wow, Paul, okay, you're getting my attention now. I've never seen this. I'm starting to see what you're saying. Then his next task was what? To proclaim to them, to announce with conviction, this Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph, he is that Christ. That's what he did. He made those two connections. He preached the gospel in that way and demonstrated that Jesus was the promised Messiah, making connections from Scripture. You think back at, uh, again, uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, as he thinks back and recounts his visit with them, this is what he says about how he preached Christ to them. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, verse 1, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. That's what he did. He declared the gospel boldly, even though his back was still covered with wounds from what they experienced in Philippi. You can only imagine how Paul... opened up the scriptures. We wish we had more. I know I wish we had more of a record of Paul's sermons. We have some of them. We know we heard Peter's, but you can imagine the various ways that Paul uh, reasoned from the scriptures. Maybe he took them to Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and spoke there of the Messiah being born in Bethlehem and then pointed out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Perhaps he went to Hosea 11.1 that the Messiah, his son, the ultimate son, was to be called out of Egypt and then talked about how Jesus went into Egypt as as an infant and then God called him out. Perhaps he turned to Isaiah 40 there and and, and discussed how the Messiah was to be preceded uh, by a messenger, one who would be a voice in the wilderness announcing, make straight the way of the Lord. And then he said, you know about John the Baptist. He was that person, you see. This is exactly what he did. And perhaps he would have uh, turned to Psalm 2, where, uh, where God himself, the Father, uh, declares, this is my son. And then Paul would explain that at the baptism of Jesus A voice was heard from heaven saying, this is my son. And he kept making his way through the Old Testament. Perhaps he turned to the prophet Zechariah there and and read there of a triumphal entry. And then he would into Jerusalem. And there he would say, that's what happened a week before Jesus was crucified. You probably heard of this, he told them, and how... He, uh, he would be sold or handed over for, for 30 pieces of silver and say that's exactly what Judas Iscariot, uh, the liar, did with Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I can imagine, to me, he had to turn to Isaiah 53, don't you? And there begin to talk about the servant of the Lord and how he would be marred beyond recognition and speak about the way Jesus suffered physically in his crucifixion and how he bore the sins of many and, and yet how he was like a, like a sheep, like a lamb. He was silent before his shears and how Jesus did not defend himself in the presence of Pilate and so forth. How he would be 
with a rich man in his death, as Isaiah says. And then you can imagine Paul saying, Jesus of Nazareth was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And you can imagine him turning to Psalm 16, where it says there that you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. And then he would say, this is why Jesus was raised from the dead, you see. This is the kind of message that Paul preached and proclaimed. He used the scriptures to demonstrate the Messiah's pathway to glory was through suffering and then demonstrate proof that Jesus of Nazareth was that very same Messiah. Oh, and there's so many more passages, aren't there? So many more passages and prophecies and promises fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It behooves us to know them. It behooves us to be filled with the knowledge of the narrative of the scriptures and the promises of God. Therefore, we see Jesus more clearly and see his work with greater clarity. What were the results of this preaching of Paul's, this, this explaining and reasoning from, from the scriptures? Well, like, like always, it's a mixed result. It's a mixed result. Some believed and then and some reacted negatively. This is like our Lord taught in the parable of the of the soils. There are four different kinds of soils, but only one, only one was good soil. The majority rejected it. And we're led to believe that something similar happened there. It says in verse 4 that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. I take that verb, the form of that verb, they were persuaded to be referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, not persuaded by Paul's great oratory skills, but by the Spirit's grace, they were brought like Lydia to have their, their hearts open and they were brought a sense of conviction and repentance and were persuaded and brought into the kingdom of God. As did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Who were the devout Greeks, remember? Those are the God-fearers. Those are, those are non-Jewish people who are, who are now drawing close to the God of Israel and seeking to understand who he is and so forth. Well, uh, many of them responded positively, persuaded by the grace of God through the preaching of the gospel. Paul would also describe that for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Again, he's reflecting back on, on something that took place not too long before he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And here's what he says. Listen to him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 4, Paul says, We know, brothers, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's what he says. And what happened? You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, and you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then we already read earlier that he said, you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. And so that's what happened. That was the positive result, beloved. Paul says, I know that God had called you since before the foundation of the world. I know he'd chosen you. Why? Because when I preached the gospel, it didn't come just in words. It did come in words, but it also came with conviction and power and the, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I know that. Why? Because you received the word even though it led to suffering. It led to persecution. And yet you still had the joy 
of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, when you and I do that, when we simply reason from the Scriptures, explain who Jesus is, the power of the Holy Spirit can work with the Word of God and the Gospel and bring that kind of upside-down world into people's lives. Don't lose hope in the power of the Gospel and the grace of God. There will be fruit. Trust it. Trust it. Now, there was negative uh, results as well. It says, but the Jews were jealous in verse 5. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, you know, they found the people laying around in the street in the center, and they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. You can see why they were getting jealous. These were God-fearing Greeks, meaning they're Greeks that probably have been coming to the synagogue, getting closer, and they're thinking we're about to convert them to Judaism, and here comes this man Paul, and he converts them to this new sect of Jesus. You know? and, and so they're jealous. This has happened earlier in, in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Almost all the time when the Jews persecute Paul, it's out of jealousy. Instead of responding by speaking with Paul about the scripture and, and trying to see, if it, is it true? And instead of that, they just become filled with jealousy. And they're the ones, they're the ones who start this whole trouble in the city. They formed a mob with non-Jewish people. They set the city in an uproar. You see, that was a very deliberate action Paul did not incite a riot. Paul did not call for protest. Now, it's true that Paul was preaching that there is another king and his name is Jesus. <laughs> That's true, and that could sound like insurrection. Paul wasn't trying to create a rebellion. That's not how the kingdom of God comes, but they use that statement, as they will in various other places, to create a political problem for those who preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself faced that same, that same charge that he was declaring himself to be another king. But Jesus did not call for rebellion against Caesar. He said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And on the night when he was arrested, he told Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's not how his kingdom comes. Not through power or military power, political power, not through coercion. And, and then before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so, no, it was not Paul. It was not the Christian faith that was calling for rebellion or uprising or the overturning of governments. But that can inevitably be the consequences, the result. Evidently, Peter learned this lesson when he put that sword away because later he would write in 1 Peter chapter 2 to those Jewish Christians who had been scattered. He said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. 
love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, of course, there's limits to that. Peter himself preached and recorded in earlier chapters of the book of Acts. When these are in conflict, he said, we must obey God rather than men. But the point being here is that Paul and them were falsely accused. That was part of the negative reaction. And this will be a continual sort of thing. It's not the mission of the, of the apostles in the church to turn systems upside down, but inevitably that may be the result. Change lives rocks the boat. It rocked the boat in my Roman Catholic family. <laughs> Brought a lot of tension. It rocked the boat in my uh, late 70s rock and roll band when somebody starts following Jesus. And I know some of you have felt the very same thing. Belief in Christ can rock the boat, turn people's worlds upside down. Well, that's the teaching of the word that brought about the result. When Luke narrates what happened in Berea, he says almost nothing about what Paul said, but he does narrate how the receiving of the word in Berea also had the similar impact. Let's look down at verse 10 through 12. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the, the Jewish synagogue. Again, this is Paul's rhythm of life, living with intentionality, his point of contact. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. How so? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. Paul says these Berean Jews were different. They were more noble. That word noble means to be generous, meaning sort of like generous in their attitude, in open-minded, you know, rather than immediately, you know, criticizing Paul or uh, taking that sort of angle, they, they were ready to hear him out. Their, their heart and minds were open to hear what this teacher had to say. And they demonstrate their noble character, their noble attitude by how they responded. What did they do? They received the word with all eagerness. That doesn't mean immediately they were born again and were Christians, but that's, that was their attitude. With, with humility, we might say they had teachable hearts. They wanted to learn. Here's a rabbi teaching the Old Testament scriptures, and they wanted to hear it and receive it. To receive it means to, to take a hold of it with all eagerness. And I think that's, that's a word to us today. These people were yet to be Christians. And they had a hunger. And we need to re retain that hunger, that humility and readiness to read the word, to hear the word, to take in the word and not find ourselves in that place where we believe, uh, you know, it's been a long time, I pretty much got this book down. <laughs> no, may God give us that appetite we saw last week from Psalm 19 and the, the parallels there that, that we looked at. James, the brother of the Lord, in James 1.21, says, humbly receive, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. 
That's the attitude I pray that we're able to maintain. Uh, as Psalm 119 said last week, we, we, we quoted it. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Well, I pray that's the, that's the kind of appetite the Lord continues to give to you. I know we go, we go through seasons, we go through ups and downs, right? Sometimes we have more appetite for this book. I can tell you it's a blessing to any teacher, be you a Sunday school teacher or anyone else, to have people listening like that who have an, a hunger. And I, I've, I've seen that at times in, in, in greater measure in places that I've traveled across the world that, just did, that were underserved, that didn't have as many books and teachers and programs and solid churches and travel and bring the word to places in Latin America. And it's like that. It's, you know, it's sitting on the front room, floor room only, you know, because there's an appetite to hear the word of God. Well, that's what they had, and they weren't Christians yet. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They weren't listening like this. <laughs> they were listening like this. But they didn't only listen and take in the word, they examined it. They studied it. They combined, they combined humble receptivity with careful reflection. Let's, they weren't gullible, in other words. They checked to see, is what this man's saying really lining up with our Old Testament scriptures? And so they studied diligently and consistently. It says there daily they poured over this, checking, corresponding, scripture interpreting scripture. Some people are just simply gullible. You think they have a great appetite for the word, and what they have is just, they're just being blown from to and fro by the wind, as Paul says in Ephesians. They have no roots. They're gullible. Paul felt that way about the Galatians. He went there and taught them the gospel, and then he says, you, somebody else comes and preaches another gospel, and you guys have them over for, for lunch. <laughs> What's up with you, you see? But they were diligent to combine this ready to receive and a careful spirit of examination. Again, that, I think every teacher would love to have that sort of response from anyone who's listening. Well, what are the results? Again, they're mixed, positive and negative. It says, verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as many. It keeps mentioning the role of women who had a high position in the cities in which he was ministering. I want you to see the connection of the little word therefore. Many of them therefore believed. Meaning what? Meaning that in this case, many believed because they, they hungrily accepted the word and daily, daily checked it. Daily studied it. Therefore, that word bore its fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. God can work very quickly, we've seen, sometimes with very little to communicate because conversion's a miracle. Sometimes it comes through this tilling of the soil, tilling of the soil, watering the soil, watering the seeds, and eventually there can be fruit. And that's what happened. Many of them came to faith because of their study of the word, because of their receptivity to the word. You know, you have people like that again, those of you in your life, you have family members. Keep watering. Keep watering. Keep bringing the truth with love, with graciousness, 
with gentleness. Those of you that teach our children here in, in Sunday school, they're like the synagogue Jews that Paul went to. They've got their stories of Noah and Abraham and so forth. Patiently help them, reason with them from the scriptures. Time, time, week after week. And God may bear fruit and bless it with the power of his Holy Spirit. Turn the world upside down. That's quite a tall order, huh? It's said that the Christian faith eventually did, right? Affect the entire Roman Empire. But it begins really very basically and very small. Turning the world upside down starts how? Teaching the Word of God in a Christ-centered way. Showing the narrative of the Bible teaches that this is the central message, as Jesus said, Messiah had to suffer for your sin and then be raised from the dead, declared the Son of God, and then teaching that Jesus is that Messiah. He fulfilled all these scriptures. All the promises of God were yes and amen in Him, His life, death, and resurrection. Praying for receptivity. Maybe your own receptivity. Maybe your own humility to receive the word. To open your own heart to something you've heard a, a hundred times. <laughs> and finally get to that place where, like a Berean, you say, I'm going to study it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to look up those cross-references. I'm going to see if it's so. I'm going to open the book. What happened to me? I was in Denny's having the Superbird, that turkey sandwich, till like 4 a.m. in the morning. And all my friends thought I was crazy. What was I doing? Flipping this Bible back and forth, reading. Living with gospel intentionality, teaching the Word of God, taking those point of context, praying for receptivity. And lives get turned upside down. One by one. You're a Christian, that's what happened to you. Someone took the time to talk to you about Jesus. I know that many of you went to see the movie this last week um, regarding the conversion of C.S. Lewis. It's called The Most Reluctant Convert. I didn't go, I did read the story of, of his life. I know, I know his conversion story. but I'd like to actually finish by reading you another conversion story another testimony of an even maybe more reluctant <laughs> um, convert. Well, we've seen Paul's conversion, glorious, remember? Uh, but here's another one. This is the story, I'm, some, many of you are familiar with it, the conversion story of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield uh, re refers to her own uh, conversion story story in this title, My Train Wreck Conversion. And then the subtitle is, As a Leftist Lesbian Professor, I Despise Christians, Then I Somehow Became One. That's her subtitle. <laughs> I'm reading through it. Be patient. We'll make our way through this, and I'm cutting a few portions out here and there. She says, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. <laughs> No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. 
Those who profess the name commanded my pity and wrath. Stupid, pointless, menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttressed the Christian right. After my tenure book was published, I used my post, her, her post as a tenured professor, to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. While on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack in the form of an article in the local newspaper. It was about promise keepers. It was around 1997 she did this. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and the other for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. It was from the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind, it was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kinds of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you're right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialistic worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken, Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. We'll see some of that next week in Athens. This is a good bridge to, to next week. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That's not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, this is after much time, I accept it. Now, my motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. God has other things in mind, right? Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. 
We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. They, when we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. He, his prayers were intimate. They were vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, at least not at the beginning, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. Many Christians have never done that. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My transgendered friend, Jay, cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine saying, this Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria. With tremors, I whispered, Jay, what if it is true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we're all in trouble? I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired, but the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. And the, the image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world one Lord's Day, Ken preached on John 7, 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. You see, I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of life, understanding came before obedience, and I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not one being judged. But the verse promised understanding after obedience, the obedience of faith. I wrestled with the question that I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view or that I just want to argue with it. I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I fully understood, is what she said. I prayed long into the unfolding of the day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But, now when, I, but when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian? Or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make 
my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. Her world was turned upside down, upside down by being turned right side up. I did not want to lose everything I had loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make, my, make right my world. Turn it right side up. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace and then in community. And today, in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Beloved, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Where did you see yourself in that story? Patient or impatient? Loving or unloving? Bringing the word to others? Where did you see yourself? Or maybe you see yourself where she found herself. Not yet receptive. Not yet believing this is inspired of God. Pray the Lord will give you grace to trust his word wherever you stand in this, in this account. Lord, 